Hey everybody and welcome back to another Ghouls in the House. I am Arnold T. Blumberg. And I am Natalie Lutovsky. And first off, I want to apologize. It's largely my fault that it's been nearly a month since the last time and we'd been teasing for a while on our social media that we were going to do a timely Christmas-themed episode. But now we're just going to get it out on Christmas. So while you're unwrapping all your presents and uh, looking at the tree or whatever else people do on I don't, Christmas. I don't, I don't know what people do on Christmas. I don't really know. Actually, I do know a little bit. Anyway, we're going to talk about some Christmas movies. And we'd gone through a lot of choices of what to do. Uh, first of all, we wanted to avoid some of our obvious stuff, including some things we've covered on previous episodes of Doctor of the Dead. Um, not that we can't revisit it, but Night of the Comet we've talked about a couple times before. We did do a Christmas-themed episode of Doctor of the Dead a while back. You can still find that on atbpublishing.com in our archives. And we did all kind of stuff there. We did uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. We did Black Christmas. The original, which I still would like to do the Black Christmas three times, where we do the first one, the remake, and then the other remake. Yeah, I've never seen either remake, so that'd be interesting. And uh, a number of others. So then we were like uh, narrowing it down. There's one movie in particular that we really, really wanted to do as a Christmas thing. We haven't gotten around to it yet. Everybody else thinks it's awesome. And if things work out, we'll do it as yet another episode right after this one and try to get it in before New Year's. But this time around, we sought out some oddities or things that we thought would be a little outside of what we'd normally go for. And it turns out that both of them were sitting on Shudder, which we have subscription to and is often a very nice way to pass the time. In fact, just as a side note before we get to the movies, I have to mention, we've also been watching a lot of stuff we're not spending time talking about, but that has been excellent, including both epic-length documentaries on the histories of the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street series, Crystal Lake Memories, and what was it? Never Sleep never Alone? Sleep, ne- never Sleep Again. Never Sleep Again. <laughs> never Sleep Alone. <laughs> Invite Freddy into your bed and everything will be That's fine. That's a very different documentary. But <laughs> Never Sleep Alone. Okay. Anyway. And, uh, and they're great because they really do exactly what you want as a fan. They go through every movie. They brought back as many people as they could. And then just last night... We finally caught up with what was a beautifully made documentary that Mark Patton did, the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, uh, called Scream, Queen. Exclamation all, point. All about his experience as a gay actor who was not yet out at the time, dealing with the mounting controversy that surrounded that particular film and its standing in heart, modern horror history. And it was really impressive. It was, it was a remarkable, remarkable piece of work. Highly yeah. recommend you watch it. I recommend all of those. And in particular, one of the things I was actually happy uh, to see was that we watched Never Sleep Again first, just because we were going through those. And as it turns out, the existence of his specific documentary about his life and experience was partly uh, inspired by the production of that Never Sleep Again documentary. So it wound up being a nice progression of things. So we've been steeped in all kind of horror history, but when it came to picking Christmas movies, we looked at what Shudder had because we thought, you know, what kind of things would be available. And we've done some creepy Santas before, and that's something that certainly comes up here twice in a row. The one we didn't do, by the way, I've noticed, is the one that every other podcast seems to have done an episode on this week, which we'll get to one day. It's Christmas Evil. With Brandon Maggart as uh, Crazy Santa. And for the record, I would argue that all Santas are creepy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It's just levels of creep. <laughs> uh, 
so yeah, it seemed like everybody gravitated to Christmas Evil. Also shows you, by the way, just how many podcasts just rely on, well, particularly this year, I guess, rely on hopping on their streaming service and figuring what's available. Yeah. There we go. So we did instead a pair of films, and I thought it'd be interesting to have the connection be both of them are non-English uh, language films. And we picked one called Deadly Games from 1989, which is a French film. It's actually much more of, I mean, it's considered a horror movie, but it's more of a thriller, mm-hmm. a suspense thriller. Um, but it's also known as Dial Code Santa Claus, Game Over, Hide and Freak, and on the original French language posters, 3615 Code Père Noël, which apparently is the number that you call to speak to Santa in the movie, the, the like 1-900 number kind of thing. I still, I think Dial Code Santa sounds like an Italian, like James Bond knockoff movie <laughs> that would have been filmed in like the late 70s. Which we've seen a lot of those through Mystery Science Theater, so... <laughs> Bart Fargo is Santa Claus in Dial Code Santa. Now nah, I could do Bart Fargo. Would watch. Would yeah, watch that. Absolutely. I'd watch any Bart Fargo movie. The whole series. Uh, so we decided to do that. And there was also another reason, which uh, I'll get to in a minute. And the second film we're covering is uh, a movie that many horror fans are particularly fond of for this time of year which is a Finnish film called Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale from 2010, which actually followed two short films that basically set up the uh, conceit of the feature and inspired the guy to finally expand it into a movie. And many people have very high opinions of Rare Exports. So for all those of you that have been looking forward to what we have to say about that, steal yourselves because it will not be what you're expecting us to say. Sorry. Anyway... But uh, why don't we just get started? Yeah, let's do it. So first up is Deadly Games. December 24th, midnight. Hidden under the dining room table, Thomas waits for Father Christmas. But what he does not know is that he is about to experience the most frightening night in his entire life. I genuinely enjoyed it. It was kind of surprising how dark this movie wound up being since essentially it's about a little kid who's stuck in his house, mostly alone except for his insulin-dependent grandpa. Who's also nearly blind. And who has to fight an intruder and uses a combination of quick wit, a very clever use of mechanical uh, technology and gimmicks and toys uh, to fight them off. And if any of this sounds even remotely familiar, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to watch it with you because I did not have the nostalgia associated with Home Alone. I think the first time I ever saw that movie all the way through was when you showed it to me for the first time, what, like a couple years ago? Last maybe? year. Like, Last year for the first time you watched Home Alone. I think your reaction to Home Alone was, all of these people are awful. Why do people like this? I don't like Home Alone. I've never I've never liked movies, even as a kid, I've never liked movies where the basic premise of the film is let's watch a kid beat the hell out of adults. And there are others like that before Home Alone and others mm-hmm. after it. You get stuff like Problem Child. Yeah, I've never liked that as a premise. I don't find that enjoyable. I also don't particularly care for slapstick. I don't mind the occasional physical joke 
in some comedies I like, but for another thing, which will probably lose me a lot of people, because I know there are people that love this, but Three Stooges, I think, is like some of the worst, lowest end of comedy in classic comedy history. I'm a Marx Brothers fan, and yes, they did some physical stuff too, but Three Stooges comedy is about cruelty and violence and hurting people, and I see nothing funny about that, nothing artful, and I also don't like seeing that uh, like Home Alone is just that's all it is. It's like he's and there's that thing on YouTube that you also showed me where <laughs> somebody decided, hey, let's add the blood to all the Home Alone scenes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, because they'd be dead from any one of these things. And someone else also did sort of a realistic from a science, engineering, biology, physics type perspective of how many of the traps that Kevin sets for the burglars in Home Alone would have actually just straight up killed them and they wouldn't have progressed to the next stage of his, like, House of Horrors there. Mm -hmm. Um, And the answer is basically all of them. Like, they would have been dead, like, five minutes into trying to get into that house. Keep the change, you filthy animal. But, you know, we digressed. <laughs> well, so the Home Alone thing was when I looked this up and we were looking for like, what were we going to do? And I saw it's about a kid defending his home uh, from uh, a creepy guy who dresses as Santa Claus and tries to break in. And we'll talk more about that guy. Um, he has some you know, murky uh, motivations. I found out that this movie was part of a lawsuit, or at least an intended legal action. I think they were threatened with it and nothing ever actually happened, so perhaps some sort of settlement took place. Mm. They went after Home Alone and said that they had stolen things, and the timing works out just right. This came out in 89. There's plenty of time for everybody involved with Home Alone to have seen this, to have gotten wind of a lot of it. And as you've pointed out, with much more familiarity with Home Alone, it's not just as simple as... You know, kid home alone fighting off like a criminal or someone trying to get into the house. There's actually some exact visuals and some gimmicks in this movie that are more or less exactly what what Kevin does. Yeah, I mean, you tried very hard to keep me from seeing anything about it before we watched it. And I think we got like 10 or 15 minutes into it. And I kind of turned to you and was like, is this basically like a proto Home Alone? And that's when you were like, pause movie. Let me tell you about this lawsuit. (laughs) And I think the real damning part of all of this is it sounds like there was a concerted effort made to block the release of this film in the United States and prevent it from going into any kind of distribution, theatrical or otherwise. And... It prevented people from having seen this movie in the U.S. before Home Alone could come out. And so Home Alone feels fresh and new and like this revelation, except that they just didn't have the context for it. And although we don't have any definite evidence of this, we have a couple of things. One, this movie, despite coming out in 89, had its North American premiere in 2018 Mm -hmm. at a film festival. And there's certainly also uh, plenty of Hollywood stories throughout the history of filmmaking where American movie studios have suppressed the release of a foreign film in order to get their English language remake out. One of the ones I think of all the time because it was one that really pissed me off at the time was the Spanish language uh, zombie movie Wreck or Record, which I love. 
and which I was desperately trying to find once I found out it existed, but because Sony had put out Quarantine, which was basically a shot-for-shot remake of it, they made sure that that wasn't released here before Quarantine was out. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't even get it except in like a bootleg you could find online and, you know, download. So I watched it on the computer, and then eventually it came out. But that's standard, you know, procedure for these kind of things. So it's not surprising and yes, anybody who's a Home Alone fan, you're going to see this movie if you haven't and think, well, there you go. That's where, I mean, although apart from that and the connections, it is still also a drastically different film in tone and in general, general meaning. I mean, it's French. <laughs> so it's like when you say surprisingly dark, I think, well, it's French. It has a lot of elements to it that it were clearly done for the artistic flair and not really for plausible story or like there are times when the movie feels very based in reality and then there are times when it feels so surreal you think is this a dreamscape and then you remember it's French and that's sort of what what kind of brings you back into it and says I think it's supposed to be real but it's like French real like he has that enormous basement level toy wonderland that comes from his father's youth as well with like the rope bridge and the endless mountains of toys it looks like what if Willy Wonka had a toy factory instead of a candy factory mm -hmm. and you get to it by going through the secret door through what is it the ice box yeah, it's like a refrigerator yeah. in the Old basement school ice box he thinks his mom doesn't know the room exists but I feel like it's her mansion that she lives in and he makes a point of saying that, like, his father's toys and his father's father's toys and, like, all the toys of their generations are in this, like, extraordinarily fanciful, like, cavern of childhood. And I can't imagine his mom never thought, like, I wonder what exists between this wall and that wall in this giant, like, open space in the blueprint of this house. You know, his, his mom knows that there's stuff going on there. Besides Home Alone, I want to point out that we start off the movie with the fact that he sleeps in a, a phenomenally ornate fighter plane shaped bed, like a bunk bed. And Eye of the Tiger plays when he wakes up, although not because it's not really Eye of the Tiger because they did like a, you know, bargain version of Eye of the Tiger. But also he recreates several sequences I mean, some people might think Rambo first because that's the more common connection, but it's definitely Commando. He does Commando stuff, and I'm so glad that I showed you Commando first also because <laughs> he definitely recreates the putting the stuff on his face and thing from Commando. And Even, like running through the mansion hallways with the plants and rolling yeah, and stuff. and he also recreates the poster shot they do at the end of Commando. He puts the gun over the back of his shoulder and everything. And so they're clearly Commando fans, and that was only a few years before that anyway, so that's... Perfect. Remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's what made you. You did. I lied. But we should dial it back to so the kids, Thomas, the Fremont family. His mother is a massively powerful uh, CEO of a company that owns definitely more than one toy store. Or at least department stores. Yeah, and she's acquiring more or planning more, so she's very successful. They're incredibly wealthy. The kid's got anything he could possibly want. And the thing is, he's also very clever. We know he's good with computers. They lay it out very nicely. He's good with 
mechanical stuff. He's good with soldering things together and making stuff. And he's computers. like made his own trap door in a hallway to play commando with the dog. He's he's tricked out the entire house out from under his own mother and grandfather, and they aren't even aware of how much he's done to this house. She actually just asks him over breakfast if he could just stop like sawing holes in the house for a little while and the grandfather is uh like i said insulin dependent but the one of the things that instantly i liked about it was the relationship with the kid and his mother who could too easily fall into a cliche of corporate woman so she's going to be icy and distant and part of the story will be got to get this mother to realize what's important no that's not really part of it at all she goes to work and she is kind of workaholic, but the guy who's there definitely seems like a potential boyfriend and they also don't really go much further with that either. He says, I'll take care of the accounting, you go home. But she's okay. She's very successful and she's focused and the grandfather is incredibly warm and it's a great family dynamic. And even though the kid has one of the worst mullets in history, it is impressive mullet on film um, the worst mullet in history was had by my manager at the <laughs> campus convenience store where i worked in college who actually once in her mind probably playfully punched me in the arm because i didn't tell her that her mullet had gone flat and that she had to go back to the bathroom and fix it and i'm thinking i don't know how to tell you when this goes bad because it started bad <laughs> So, in my mind, that's the worst. But you didn't see Sherry's mullet. No. So, you don't have the context so for it. Thomas's mullet. Is the... So, we'll, okay, go with, we'll go with that. So, achy breaky kid and his grandfather and mother have a great relationship. And his grandfather plays games with him. And they appear to be playing like a D&D sort of board-based games. You know, what you pointed out, which was true, you were saying like all the stuff that they're kind of skipping through with like the grandfather doing stuff to stop the villain and everything they did kind of do a lot of the mm -hmm. stuff in the game is what they're going to do later yeah in repelling there is certainly mirroring there and the thing is that part is heartwarming and there's some good feeling there and even some humor from the idea that he's he uses his dog to play his games but this is also an exceptionally dark movie because the villain is also, I have serious questions about the nature of the villain. The villain is Zach Galifianakis. I'm sorry, not no. not exactly, but he looks like him. Say it with a French accent, I guess. It's yeah. sort of sort of it. Zach uh, and he appears to be a homeless guy, possibly, um, but which automatically started making me thinking it's kind of uncomfortable in this day and age to be seeing like a homeless person being demonized, and also. I'm convinced that we're supposed to think he has some kind of like mental disability or something because he seems so simple minded and so childlike that even when he does and he does horrific things, there are murders in this movie that I thought were more brutal and frightening than things I've seen in slasher movies because it felt more real, arguably, mm. is that he still basically seems to just want to be playing yeah, like when we first meet him before we realize he's our main villain, it's a bunch of kids having a snowball fight in the street. And he looks genuinely delighted at the idea of it and makes a snowball and like throws it and the kids, it kind of breaks the magic of the moment because an adult has entered the game 
and the kids basically say, hey, he's not with us. And they go running off down the street and basically just leave him standing in the middle of the road. And you're thinking as a viewer, it's very sad. He wants to be, you know, a child again and play with the children. And also it still feels creepy because it's like who just walks up to random kids and yeah. is like joining in their game. And he also then gets a job as a Santa at the mother's store and starts to get really creepy with the girl that that's uh talking to him and she fires him on the spot which i also thought was excellently played it's like you don't this is someone who's handling this correctly you get rid of that person and this is sort of where i feel like the implication is he's not quite as simple-minded as maybe we thought he could have been initially like especially in the the snowball situation because he has to be adult enough to go to the store, go to HR, like apply to be the Santa. I mean, they kind of did a last minute, want a big festivity, hire yeah. a whole bunch of Santas and let's do this thing. But he still managed to get hired and put on a uniform. Yeah. And when she fires him, she tells him, like, go to HR, you're fired. And he does. He does go to and HR. And he also uses that as a way of figuring out his plan for revenge is to find her home and her child. Mm -hmm. And figures out a way to get there because she's having all the presents for the year delivered to the house. Because, of course, the kid who's the kid of the toy company lady mm -hmm. is going to get the shipment of toys. And it's brutal. Like I said, it's brutal murders take place. This movie includes, oh, by the way, I think by now anybody watching our show should understand this because we tend to do this most of the time, but it's full spoilers here. So if you haven't seen this before, we're going to talk about everything. I mean, the thing is, you know, pretty early on that he's crazy. Well, there's no mystery. Yeah, there's yeah. no. And I think that's why we call it more of like a thriller. Yeah, because it's not really unless you really want to know exactly how it ends for yourself, a spoiler warning isn't really necessary because ultimately it follows all the beats of a thriller. You know well, who your bad guy is. You know there's going to be this sort of battle in the middle. Well, what I was going to say was it has certainly one of the taboo shattering kind of moments mm. that some films will do and in more recent years shy away from, which is the killing of an animal. And boy, does he. It's like, that's when the tone of the movie really shifts. Yes, that's the turning point. It's like creepy right up until that point. And then you're like, oh, they're going there. Like, yeah. They're going to go there. And how the kid watches that happen and not scream is beyond belief, perhaps. But I actually was already so sold on the idea that this is a clever kid and a self-possessed kid that I didn't think it was breaking reality. I just thought it was an impressive character moment. Well, also, basically, in. his mother has told him, you know, you can't, you can't wait up for Santa because if you are there and Santa sees you, Santa will get very angry and turn into an ogre. And I looked it up, and this does not seem to be a French tradition. It's just his mom trying to find a way to get the kid who loves, like, fantasy and is way too smart to believe in Santa at that age, but still does, and she kind of wants to hold on to the magic yeah. to try to get him to not do it. But he's, like, obsessed with proving that Santa's real because he loves the magic and he wants to prove it to his friends and he's like hooked up the whole surveillance system mm -hmm. and he's hiding under the table and the minute that our villain 
comes into the house through the chimney. He he comes in through the chimney because he's committed to his own like sort of playing of Santa. The dog obviously knows what's what. The dog is yap, yap, yapping at him. And he's like under the table saying like, oh, like Santa doesn't want to see you. And it's not just that he kills the dog, but he just like grabs like a butter knife off the it's table. It's like a cake server. I yeah. Think. yeah. Yeah. And just is just like, nope. It's horrible. It reminded me a lot of the EC Comics story about the Santa that also was done on the HBO's Tales from the Crypt. And I mean, there are so many Santa, evil Santa things anyway, from from the more realistic stuff, which this arguably is, to something more supernatural. And and I had a couple notes, too, about how this went from like zero to 102 seconds. You know, once that yeah. happens, the movie becomes pretty damn tense for the rest of the film with like a sequence where they're chasing outside sort of on the roof of the mansion, which gave me like Halloween four vibes and some other stuff and. There's a Shining-esque snow maze kind of sequence. There's also a bit where the kid's running through a labyrinth in the house that's like an art gallery set up in the house, but we both couldn't figure out why would the kid be confused about the layout of the labyrinth that he's evidently gone through a million times. Yeah, he's trying to find but, the stairway that goes up to his mom's office. Yeah, that was a little weird. I also was making several notes throughout about how much I hate, and this just goes to a general Christmas thing, so sorry. But I, I despise the story beat that happens in so many things where adults are working so hard to try to make a kid believe in this lie, you know, beyond reason. And he's not that young. It's like, stop torturing this kid and trying to make him believe in this insanity. And his best friend already doesn't believe. And it's like, you do realize that, like, Santa's not real, right? Like, yeah. you know, the Santa who comes around here is, is not real. But, you know... The, in and around that, this kid is, you know, obviously prepared for the fight of his life. He's been preparing all this time with all of his commando stuff. But it's incredibly tense. There's some, like, a John Wick kind of attitude, too, because once the dog's killed, it's like, it's time to get this guy. People keep asking if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. And I feel like it's like in the beginning, they made it clear that he doesn't have a lot of friends who are peers. That like his grandfather is a playmate, his dog is a playmate, and they sort of play together. And I think that's what made it all the more shocking when you're not that far into the movie and santa takes out the dog because i feel like if it were an american movie he would have like thrown the dog out an open window or something and then in the third act like the dog comes back to the rescue because Absolutely. he landed in like a snowbank or something but it's french and had to like find a way back into the house um obviously not gonna happen made it very clear dog is dead it felt like they established how he was prepared to defend himself against the intruder in a way that they didn't do in home alone so like in home alone you're you're not wrong in saying that everyone's awful i mean everyone in that movie is awful and they're I've never understood the nostalgia there's a lot of fan theories about how 
they're all like in purgatory or like they're all like <laughs> well, dead or that's crazy or but, he's yeah. dead like all kinds of stuff yeah but ultimately he's someone who is not exactly that effective functioning as a person kevin mm-hmm. and you know that's the whole story arc is he's trying to learn to take care of himself and do the laundry and go grocery shopping and whatever Fair enough. You can learn how to do those things, but you don't suddenly learn how to booby trap your entire house when like two days prior you were like beside yourself because there wasn't a piece of cheese pizza for you to eat at dinner. Mm -hmm. So Home Alone doesn't really do a good job of letting you know that he has these skills, whereas... Clearly, in this movie, he has these skills. She has conversations with the grandfather, with her boyfriend slash co-worker, all about how brilliant her son is and how skilled he is. And you see demonstrations of this Mm -hmm. in everything that he has set up in the house that will then sort of be at his disposal to use. We also talked about how really at a certain point, almost all dialogue drops out. In a Mm -hmm. sense, the movie is kind of well-suited to be an international release. It doesn't rely on a lot of dialogue through pretty much the whole third act. A lot of it isn't really dialogue-driven. And then, as you pointed out, there would be times where we'd say, oh, this is definitely French. There's like, it would get weirdly slow motion. There's, There's stuff in this also that we were starting to turn to each other, I know, in the third act, and like just basically doing variations of, oh my God, like how far this movie was going to just make you feel bad. Like there's this long slow motion sequence of him burying the dog and crying. <laughs> and it's like And the song is playing about a boy becoming a man, and, like in the lyrics. You're and like, and come and on. He traps the Santa guy in a sauna room for a while. It's very clever. And then there's like the train gambit where he puts like a bomb on the train that doesn't quite work, but the guy's fascinated with the train and and there's like all these slow motion sequences and it's there's some artful stuff and there were times where there's like a shot here there was like this is very beautifully done and yet it would keep punching you in the gut with these horrifically dark things he like Um, actually stabs the kid in the leg and he's got to fashion his own leg brace out of like materials he finds in the house like he's genuinely at war uh which is insane and i mean if we would just say right straight to the ending it it makes sure to stab you in the heart right to the last second where the kid is just like practically catatonic when the mother finally gets him. Cause of course, you know, of course they defeat the guy and this, this is not like a supernatural thing. So they defeat the guy. Um, they Grand- Grandpa shoots Santa. Grandpa shoots Santa and they don't even really have the bopping back up kind of moment. He's mm-hmm. just down. And the kid's final thing is, it's all my, it's all my fault. It's my fault. I wanted to see Santa Claus. Then it just shoots you into the end credits with the song again. <laughs> with they, the song. they play the song again about a boy becoming a man. It's like I wanted to see Santa Claus. Well, you did, kid. Merry Christmas, everybody. Like that kid's gonna be in therapy forever. Forever. I'm just thinking of like how much I enjoy watching the Rankin and Bass specials and thinking, you know, tonight on ABC, you know. Santa Claus is coming to town and deadly games. <laughs> I mean, I would argue that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is kind of a horror movie. There's two. There, well, you know, to be perfectly honest, totally seriously, there's a lot of horror in the Rankin and Bass stuff. 
which much like you hadn't seen Home Alone, I don't think I had seen Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer until you showed it to me a year or two ago. Well, sir, someday I'd like to be a, a dentist. A dentist? When you showed me, I think, what is it, Santa Claus is Coming to Town? Oh, is, that's right. Is that like the origin story? Yes. One? I mean, yeah. that one feels so much like the Eastern European, like Jewish experience in the shtetl. Goyim, look it up. Look up what a shtetl is. It's the Burger Meister Meister Burger and all that just yeah. looks straight at it. Yeah. And it, it, I was like, this is like the most Jewish Christmas movie I've sure. ever seen. Like take Santa out of it. And like, this is just like a historical look <laughs> At the Jewish experience. Well, that's why I was always kind of sad as a kid that they didn't do more stuff for Jewish holidays. But they just, but obviously they could see where the popularity was and it was making more Christmas shows. So. They got to it eventually. I know you've probably never seen them, but Rugrats did well, a lot of holiday specials, including a Passover movie and a Hanukkah movie. Yeah. And they're actually great, like explainers for people who don't fully understand okay. the history of the holidays well i meant the rankin and bass stuff though specifically well, sure. like i would have loved to have seen they even got so desperate toward the end when they were running out of stuff to do they did one called nestor the christmas donkey and a couple other things it's like you know could you just do one purim show or something give us <laughs> but but i mean i still watched them all and loved them all but to get back to the original thing, there's also a lot of horror in it because whether it's winter bolt and christmas in july or many other creatures the they're Bumble gets his whole mouth ripped out. They're frightening. Well, Bumble is cute, but they're, yeah, they're frightening. Oh, he's cute. It's yeah. the, like, serial killer, sociopathic dentist elf that you got to keep your eye on. That's right, because he will remove all your teeth. While you sleep. But anyway, Deathly Games. <laughs> Nothing. Um, so anyway. But also, I will add, it's something, and I haven't looked up a lot. Like, I know you read some things about the Home Alone connections and... The lawsuit and all of that. One of the other movies I felt like pulled sort of a visual style from this when I was watching it is the Robin Williams movie Toys, um, which is also sort of a Christmas movie. I mean, the big sort of climax of that movie takes place at Christmas time, and he is the very eccentric son of a very eccentric toy manufacturer who sort of lives in a toy world. And a lot of the scenery and the house and even the factory is created in such a surrealistic style that I feel like they had to have seen this movie before they crafted some of the landscapes and some of the factory floor scenes and things and toys. Um, and if there's anyone who knows like of a definitive link, I, I would definitely be interested in learning it but it did feel if nothing else like an inspiration it's certainly not related it's not like a remake in that way but i do think they pulled elements from it what does the man know about toys mother Teresa? he has no sense of fun here's your heart of spam well how can he come up with design better than our designers we've been doing it for 50 years i don't know give me some soup okay moving on to our second film in this little christmas roundup is uh, rare exports a christmas tale from 2010, a movie that is always on top 10, usually top five lists. That's how well regarded it is for Christmas horror. He sees you when you're sleeping. 
happens when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. And he doesn't give up. And I've always kind of looked forward to seeing this movie because of its reputation. And I'm very sorry to say, and I mean it, this is not like where I just say, oh, a lot of people like this, I don't. But I feel bad that this is the case, but I really did not like this movie at all. Uh, it had a few moments, a couple little bits and pieces of visual here and there that just made me mad because it felt like this is something interesting that could have been good in a movie that was well done, but I didn't think it was. And I'm genuinely perplexed at the uh, amount of love this gets when I didn't feel it was a very, very satisfying experience at all. It turned out to be a very good pairing as movies because they're both protagonists are children. In fact, they're both young boys about the same age. Both young boys have a friend who is sort of the more realist like sarcastic one who's like you got to be kidding me thinking santa's still a thing yeah we didn't even know how many connections there were. we didn't until we started watching it and ultimately he's the one with the knowledge to fight back he also incursion he armors up like the other kid too and Mm -hmm. you know they're both like uh commando minded in that way yeah so i do think they are a good pairing in terms of a lot of thematic elements, but I would agree that it just kind of fell flat. And I didn't know until after we watched it that it had a couple of shorts that had inspired it. And you were saying the shorts very specifically were about this company that sells authentic like wild caught Santa Clauses. Yeah, he did a couple shorts before this. They only run a few minutes, like seven, ten minutes each, something like that. And the first one is basically the setup of this. Con- basically, the the first one, I did a little extra checking. The first one is basically kind of plays the end of this movie mm. where it shows like them training the wild Santas, collecting them. Here's how they're packaged and sent all around the world. And then he did a second one that was the safety instructions. And... Those were those were very popular, and I was like, okay, let's expand it. And basically, the movie, in a way, was kind of a prequel of, well, how did this come to be? How did the Rare Exports company, that basically the premise being that Rare Exports is a company based, you know, this Finnish company that has discovered mm-hmm. that there are wild, uh, old man-looking creatures with um, indeterminate powers of supernatural quality that are not entirely certain. And don't appear to be able to speak all that well or behave like humans, but they look completely human. And I guess most of them are supposed to be elves of some sort. And they capture them, train them to be Santa Clauses for department stores and ship them around the world, which literally make, first of all, even as a completely bizarre fantasy premise, which I know this is silliness to even argue about it, but even as a fantasy premise makes no damn sense whatsoever. Why would you need to send a bunch of creatures that look human and are potentially dangerous all around the world to be department store Santas. Like, they're not even sending them around. I thought the initial idea was going to be we're going to find out this is what Santa Claus is, multiple beings 
who cover the planet on the night of Christmas to deliver right. all the toys. Turns out they're not that at all. They're just department store Santas. You can get any old guy in your neighborhood to be a department store Santa. What do you need this for? With equal likelihood of that guy doing something awful to the children. <laughs> exactly. So why roll the dice on the Norwegian Santa creature? Is it Norwegian? Is it Finnish? I thought it was Finnish. It's, it's Norwegian's mech. I don't know. I believe <laughs> So, anybody there? Hey, Sweden! Not Swedish, Matt, the Norwegian. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, here's the thing. As a child, I always thought that, like, department store Santas were weird and creepy because it goes against everything that your parents tell you not to do. You've got a stranger, somebody you don't know, who's clearly older and dressed strangely, offering you candy and wanting to know your name and your deepest desires. And parents are like, pat me on the back saying, go on, go meet with the nice man who wants to know your dreams and your name and your home address and has a puppy in his van. And as I pointed out, the thing that also is deeply disturbs me about the whole thing is the extent to which our culture is wrapped up in this idea that you should try to pound into kids' heads for as long as possible that they should believe in this garbage because certainly helping them to believe in something completely delusional in no way destroys them for the rest of their lives and sets them up for conspiracy theories and other nut jobs Mm -hmm. who are going to portray reality in a warped way. It's a horrific concept on every level. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's the holiday season. I mean, and then it is. It's weird. Yeah. So you want horror? That's we're already there. Yeah. So then we get this, and the, and the thing is, all right, the, the concept already is stupid, but it, let's let's say it's what it is, which is it's supposed to be like a goofy fantasy thing. Yes, except that it's also portrayed with like gritty realism that kind of belies the the uh, whimsical idea that's at its core. And then we really were enjoying it initially because visually the movie is stunning. It's beautiful. But then it has the same advantage that Peter Jackson had with his Lord of the Rings movies, which I love a lot more than this, certainly, which is you start with a great location. You're already half the way there. And this is stark and beautiful and cold. I mean, you feel it when you're watching it. And then it basically takes two thirds of the movie to have anything happen. Mm-hmm. And not in a way that generates suspense or that builds you to something. It just doesn't do anything. And and all they're doing is eating really crumbly gingerbread cookies for like, what, an hour and a half before anything? It's the actually... only food they eat for like three days. They're living off cookies. The kid, I, I will give the actor credit or credit's due in both cases, in both movies, the actor playing the young boy is doing a great job. Yeah, the acting is is great in this too. I also like the dynamic between the father and son in this mm-hmm. because it also it's but another thing both these movies do, which is shatter a little bit of the cliches and expectations. Like you figure, oh, the you know the Finnish father and the cold, you know, they're you know, doing he's what like they got to do. He's like literally a game butcher. Is yeah. like what he does is break down animals. And you'd figure, oh, he's going to be cold and distant. Obviously, the mother is gone. And, and yet, but you do see emotion from the father. And you see how much he cares for his son. 
And it's like, that's nice. The, the, the building blocks are all here mm-hmm. for a nice movie that could also have some creepy stuff. And I'm sorry, I know a lot of people obviously disagree sharply. I feel in no way does it deliver. Because I don't care if things can be mysterious, but you need to give me something. Some level of logic. For instance, later on when we find out that there are all these Santa-looking old men running around naked, you know, you find... Well, the other thing, too, they're is... Like, they are like animals. Yeah, they're like animals, but it's like, what are they? And then, like, we're told, I think, once we find they're the elves. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, but what do the elves mean in this context? We don't really know what they are. Where do they come from? And then on another level, it's like the movie feels like you really need to have a bit more affinity for the mythology of the locale in order to get it. For example, the movie starts right off telling us what mountain we're at, and I literally had no idea that that instantly gives you the story. Because that mountain and the name, I'm not going to try to pronounce these things either, but the mountain and the name they give you right from the beginning is the mountain where mythologically this creature that is the local Santa-like figure in Finnish tradition exists and basically is considered to be the the inspiration for a lot of modern derivations of the Santa Claus figure. They even isn't this the one that makes the joke about the Coca-Cola Santa Claus? Yeah, like he's not Coca-Cola Santa. Yeah. And initially we thought, oh, is this going to be a Krampus type of thing? And it's not really Krampus because that's not what this is. This is this other creature. Uh, it that looks looks Krampusy. Has it looks big like Julapuki, but I'm not sure if that's even remotely correct. Mm-hmm. But it's the creature that the Santa Claus figure derives from. And yes, we see this enormous giant creature in ice that also is this horrific tease. You never get that creature beyond that image because they blow it up before it ever gets out of the ice. And so in in other words, we're basically told this creature is horrible. So evidently the original Santa Claus is a monster you don't want back. Its elves are mute old men that run around naked and dirty but they decide they're going to put them in red suits and send them around the world after blowing up their master. And all I'm doing while watching this whole movie is thinking, I'm never getting these two hours of my life back. And also, any action in the movie takes place in the last, like, ten minutes. I mean, there's one thing for, like, building up to a climax, but you need to have something on the way there, and it just isn't, it isn't there. I think it's an interesting idea that isn't well executed. And I think maybe the people who love it may love it just for the atmosphere and for the intent and for what it it could be. But I don't, I don't think that they were really prepared to write something feature length. The story's not there. I can't figure out why people, I mean, obviously I I think we're going to get some responses on this one. I often feel like, uh, I mean, obviously we're kind of low-key around here, and I know I know people are listening. But, I mean, it's it's hard sometimes to get engagement, you know, from people, and they like the show, and they listen. And I'd, I'd love to hear a lot more sometimes about what people are thinking. I get the feeling this one will get some responses, though, and some people will tell me. And I genuinely want to know, yeah. what is it you see in Rare Exports that makes you think when it turns up every year, on these top five lists and you look at it and go, well, of course we're exports. And I can't figure out what that is. And again, I also start questioning myself. I start to think, well, is it because it's a foreign language film? And it's like, no, there's plenty of stuff like that. I love it's not the, it's not the uh, cultural difference. 
It's not the language difference. It's the fact that it's an incredibly boring film that doesn't deliver on its premise, and then what it does have is ridiculous and poorly thought out. And I can't, I can't wrap my head around why this is such a beloved movie. Ultimately, lack of story is lack of story, period. It doesn't matter on the language. We've seen films that were extraordinarily poorly shot and like barely cobbled together but they're interesting because the story's good and you can see what they're trying to say this is sort of the opposite side of the coin in that it was obviously very competently made the movie is very beautifully filmed it is well edited it is put together exceptionally well they even have some decent effects that they work in there and some cgi and yeah they obviously don't have the budget for much but they saved it for the couple bits and pieces yeah i mean they used their budget wisely in the visuals and it's a lovely looking movie raiders by the way that was like another connection we made with this one was a bit of a raiders of the lost ark feel and they even quite clearly had that on their minds because that last shot is like the uh, boxes of santa's going into the warehouse it was mm-hmm. like they knew what they were doing <laughs> they they had a raiders reference in there so yeah it's like it, it looks good yeah but ultimately i feel like the story didn't get past what would have been like the pitch it's like the story that existed in the entirety of this film could probably be written on like one or two pages well considering where it came from it's kind of obvious isn't it yeah and i I do think that they might have made better use of their time just creating more shorts that took place in the world that they created rather than trying to do something feature length and trying to say this is also the origin point of all of this like never mind the origin point in a lot of cases i feel like people really misstep when they decide we need to do a prequel and go back and show you where this came from because to me i don't care where it came from the fact is it exists and you've created it and so just tell me more stories in that universe and more things that exist in that world that you've built don't tell me this is why the world is what it is and yet you say all of that and i agree with you and yet again this movie this is not much of a controversial film. It's a pretty well-established, like, modern classic. I can't, I can't figure it out. But And we don't always agree. I mean, sometimes we'll watch something and I'll love it and you'll feel like it's just slow or boring and vice versa. There are yeah. times when you watch something and I'm like, I don't really get it or understand it. But this is one where I think we both had the same viewing experience. We've had movies, we've had it done. We will never do an episode on Fright Night, for example. <laughs> um, Sorry. Yeah. Somebody can ask me about that if you want, but we're never going to do that. Um, but uh, but yeah, we're, we're in agreement on this. I also thought, like, Deadly Games, I enjoyed watching that. It's weird. I wouldn't necessarily put it on a rotation kind of list, but it was fun to see. And it's this it's one, worth having watched. I don't know that I'm going to say let's watch Deadly Games every year no, at Christmas. No. But, but it was, yeah. Yeah, it was nice to see. And and also, it's it was part of the reason why we wanted to do this in the first place was the idea that there are certain go-tos, you know, when you're a fan of anything, particularly horror, like you start to map it to times of the year. Halloween's the obvious one. 
but then other holidays, you know, and Christmas is the next best one for finding a really solid collection of films that are based around that holiday. And there's many more Christmas horror movies than I even realized, including some that have become more prominent now that people have looked like rediscovered. Mm -hmm. um, well, if you really want to drive home horror, what better way to do it than to take what is for many people the most joyous time of the year and make it horrific. And we don't have an emotional connection in quite the same way to like a family tradition of Christmas. And so I don't know, maybe you have to have experienced being a child who believed in Santa at some point to connect with the kid in this movie, but I still can't think of many things that are just more disturbing than the idea that you'd spend years and years lying to your child about the existence of an old man that flies through the air looks down upon everyone, determines who's good and evil. And, wa and watches you 365 and, all uh, year long. And rewards and punishes. Yeah. Why you would try to convince children of the existence of the old man with the beard in the sky. And Santa Claus too. Hmm. But I just, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. I don't on any count really get it. I mean... There's really no reason to lie to children, but we do it as a society. Just give them more Lego. That's all they need for Christmas. It's much, much more Lego. You're just vying for a Lego sponsorship of the podcast so we can have more Lego. I, I, I would like nothing more than that. <laughs> that would be great. I will happily, well, I mean, I would talk about it anyway, but if Lego would like to send me some sets, I will discuss them in detail. Ghouls in the House will become a Lego podcast. Well, we'll talk. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLatofsky, that's NBLit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Deadly Games, 1989, sure, and Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale, 2010. Mm-mm. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Silver and gold! Wahoo! <laughs> Nothing.